when the New Testament records a miracle done by Christ, we read about pertinent information given that's related to the miracle, such as where it took place, what was the location, what the healed individual might have said. Did he say anything leading up to this? Did he plead for the Lord to heal him? We also are often told about the spiritual condition of the person who would be healed. Did this individual have faith or or not? Many times we're told if others were involved in the miracle, did friends bring him to Jesus? Did he come on his own? Was he uh, hanging out in a tree? What, what, what was it? What, was, what happened around this? Did Jesus, we're often told, uh, questions that are answered like this, did Jesus perform this miracle by speaking a word or by laying his hand on the person? In other words, we're often given a great deal of information that uh, is related to the miracle. But notice Matthew gives us none of that information. Essentially, just tells us, as he communicates this miracle, that there was a demon-possessed man, blind and mute, brought to Jesus. Jesus healed him, and now he spoke and saw. That's very brief, and that's very unlike most of the other miracles that we're told about. Steve highlighted something very important just a moment ago. All the normal details that we see in other miracles or healings that Jesus did are not listed in this account. Why did Matthew choose to leave out those details? It's almost as if he was purposely downplaying them so that we wouldn't miss the point of this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. In just a few minutes, we're going to see how the Pharisees responded to this situation where Jesus cast a demon out of a man that was brought to him for healing. As you might guess, they did not throw themselves at Jesus' feet and confess him as their Lord. I wonder what they think of their reaction today. Anyway, we are in a series of messages titled, Words Have Meaning, brought to us by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve is ready, so let's get started. Matthew tells us that one day, a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. A man who had a demon living on the inside of him and had taken control of him. And as a result of being demon-possessed, this man, we're told, had lost the ability to see and to speak. But as Jesus so often did with those who were possessed individuals, he healed this man. That's the language that Matthew uses. What he means by that is that he cast the demon out. He told the demon to leave. He cast him out. And then what happened was this man's speech and sight were restored to him. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting about this miracle. It's not so much what Matthew tells us about the miracle that is significant as much as it is about what he doesn't tell us. That is what's significant. Notice that Matthew gives us very few details about this miracle. That's very unusual. That's very significant. Because most of the time when the New Testament records a miracle done by Christ, we read about pertinent information given that's related to the miracle, such as where it took place, what was the location, what the healed individual might have said. Did he say anything leading up to this? Did he plead for the Lord to heal him? We also are often told about the spiritual condition of the 
person who would be healed. Did this individual have faith or, or not? Many times we're told if others were involved in the miracle, did friends bring him to Jesus? Did he come on his own? Was he uh, hanging out in a tree? What, what, what was it? What, was, what happened around this? Did Jesus, we're often told, uh, questions that are answered like this. Did Jesus perform this miracle by speaking a word or by laying his hand on the person? In other words, we're often given a great deal of information that uh, is related to the miracle. But notice Matthew gives us none of that information. Essentially just tells us, as he communicates this miracle, that there was a demon-possessed man, blind and mute, brought to Jesus. Jesus Healed him, and now he spoke and saw. That's very brief, and that's very unlike most of the other miracles that we're told about. So why did Matthew do it this way? Well, it's obvious that Matthew purposely downplays the details of this miracle, but why? Watch this. He did this, folks, in order to highlight, not the miracle, but the confrontation with the Pharisees that followed the miracle. That's his focus. The, the miracle was simply a springboard into a discussion. His emphasis is on the reaction that the miracle received. What led to this slanderous accusation was the initial reaction of this miracle by the crowd of people who witnessed it. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And he tells us this in verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? Now we're told that the people who saw Christ cast this demon out of the man were amazed, which means more than they were simply surprised. The thought is they were astonished. They were astounded by this miracle. In fact, one Greek language scholar suggests that the thought that comes closest to conveying the original meaning of this word amazes that they were knocked out of their senses. You know how we'd put it today? We'd say they were blown away. They're just blown away. They were so amazed. And that, that is the gist of this. And as a result of being blown away with amazement, they raised a very important question. They said, this man, meaning Jesus, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, this man cannot be the Messiah, David's promised descendant, can he? Now, you wouldn't necessarily pick this up in the original text, but the way this question comes out and is worded in the original Greek text suggests that the people were skeptical concerning Jesus being the Messiah. Although they thought it was possible that he could be the Messiah, they really expected a negative answer to this question. That is very clear from the Greek text. So the gist of their thinking would would be something like this. We can see with our own eyes that Jesus has done this miracle. But he can't possibly be the Messiah, can he? He's so different than what we expected the Messiah to be like. Yet he did this miracle like the Messiah would do. Can this man possibly be the son of David? Son of David is just another uh, title for the Messiah. So the crowd is perplexed. And that's what Matthew is telling us. They're undecided. They're not sure. They don't think that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't fit the image in their minds of the Messiah. But they can't deny the fact that they actually observed a messianic type miracle. And so they're wondering out loud. They're talking amongst themselves. Could he possibly be the promised one? We don't think so, but it is possible. 
And it is this very question, this perplexity that they have, that causes the Pharisees in the crowd to absolutely panic and accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. See, the Pharisees had already decided that Jesus was a fake. They had already decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. All the evidence from this point on would mean nothing to them. They've made their decision. They're not turning back. They have made their conclusion. But if the common man on the street, if the general public decided that Jesus was the Messiah, then as religious leaders, they would lose their power and hold over the people, not to mention how Rome would come down upon them for not controlling the masses. And so threatened by the suggestion that Jesus just might be the Messiah, the Pharisees now launch into a vicious attack upon the Lord that is designed, note this, it is designed to destroy his credibility as a miracle worker. So understand the unbelief on the part of the Pharisees is not based on the objective evidence. Understand this, it's pure politics. They're threatened by lo- about losing their power. They panic. This is not a matter of let's search the scriptures and see if this is true or not. Let's observe the evidence. Let's investigate. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with power and control. And so in verse 24, here's their response designed to destroy Christ's credibility as a miracle worker. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's very interesting that the Pharisees never denied that Christ had performed a miracle. How could they? How could they deny it? They'd witnessed many of these miracles. They'd absolutely be stupid if they would have denied it because everybody saw it. They didn't do it privately, did it in front of others. But what they did do is they simply reinterpreted his miracles. They attributed the source of his power to perform these miracles to Satan, who they refer to as Beelzebul. When they say Beelzebul, they are referring to Satan. The, the, the word Beelzebul actually was a derogatory term used by the Jewish people of that day as a name for the devil. It literally meant Lord of the Dung or Lord of the Dung Heap, and it was a form of the ancient Philistine deity Beelzebub, And they just changed it. Now, this wasn't the first time that the Pharisees had called Jesus satanic. Back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, they said that he cast out demons. They didn't use the word Beelzebul, but they meant that. They said the ruler of the demons. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus told his disciples that his enemies were going to insult him by referring to him as Beelzebul. He said this, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? But you know what? Even though even though the Lord had previously been accused of working on behalf of Satan and casting out demons by Satan's power up to this point, he's not defended himself. Notice that he's not defended himself against this wicked charge. He's he's just let it go. Just let it go. But not now. Not now. Not this time. The Lord is not going to let this latest accusation about being satanic go unanswered. Why is he going to answer it now? He's going to do it not to defend himself personally. The Lord didn't do it for that reason. But for the sake of the undecided crowd of people who were weighing in their minds the thought that he just might be the Messiah, even though they don't think so. 
the Lord for their sake is going to directly confront the Pharisees about this evil charge and he will answer their blasphemous accusation. And the way he does this, Matthew tells us, is by giving the Pharisees several arguments that prove their accusation against him was false. Now, you and I may look at this first time you're exposed to this. I've worked on this all all week and been reading ahead. And you may look at this for the first time and say, you know what? I don't possibly see how this is relevant. I've made up my mind who Jesus is. I, I know who he is. Where, where is this relevant for me? I wouldn't dare think that he's satanic. I assure you, though, this is a very, very pertinent and relevant portion of Scripture. Because you may have made up your mind about Christ, but many people who you know have not. If Jesus is not the true Messiah and King, then listen, the only reasonable explanation for his extraordinary powers, which nobody denied, is that he was satanic. If he's not of God and he can do these miracles, then he must be of Satan. In fact, in the Talmud, which is the writings of the ancient Jewish rabbis, it may surprise you to know, then again it may not, that Jesus is officially and actually accused of being a sorcerer. It says that in the Talmud. A man who the Talmud, and written by the rabbis, a man who they said learned how to use magic while he was in Egypt. Then he came to Israel, used these magical powers to cast out demons and do miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, but he is a fraud. He is a sorcerer. He is satanic. Folks, that's exactly what the Pharisees said. The rabbis concluded that they, the Pharisees were right. That he was just one of the devil's agents who cast out demons with satanic supernatural powers. So, in essence, what Matthew is doing is he's giving us an apologetic. He's giving us a way to defend the faith and also to solidify our own faith in Christ. He's giving us solid evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. The Messiah, the King, which is exactly what Matthew's theme is in his whole book. And he does this by pressing home the primary truth that Christ's miracles were not done by Satan's power, but by the power of God. So that's the background of this passage. We're, we're going to be able this morning, Lord willing, to look at two of these arguments Jesus gave. And we want to unwrap this passage, an amazing passage, giving you help in solidifying your faith and giving you a little equipment to be able to witness to skeptics who say they reject Christ. So the first argument Jesus gave to prove that the Pharisees' accusation against him was false is this. He told them their accusation was absolutely illogical, meaning it makes no sense, it's absurd, it's it's unreasonable, it's preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. Notice what he said in verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now Matthew tells us that even though the Pharisees didn't directly say to Jesus that you're satanic, they didn't say that to him, he knew exactly what they were thinking. And what they were saying, even though they probably just moved amongst the crowd and spoke in very low words and low tones to the people around them, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And knowing their thoughts, he began to answer their charge by drawing an analogy from the world of physical warfare. He told them something that is self-evident. It's a commonly held, understood Truth of life. He reminds them about something that they just all knew to be true. That is, in the physical world of warfare, no kingdom, 
no city, no household that fights against itself will continue to stand firm. In other words, in-house fighting breaks down and destroys an organization. No group that fights against itself continues to be strong and powerful. This is just common sense. Nobody would deny this. It's just a generally held truism. It's self-evident, understood by all. Civil war or internal strife always results in tearing a nation or a people down. Nobody could debate that. Everybody understands that. And so, having a commonly understood truth, Jesus now took this well-understood principle of life and he just applied it to the spirit world of Satan's domain by asking a very pointed and specific question. In verse 26, he said this, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What the Lord is saying is this, since it's common knowledge that kingdoms that fight against themselves become ruined kingdoms, then why would Satan fight against himself by using me to cast his demons out of people? What a great truth. What a great question. In other words, he's saying, your charge against me makes no sense. It is illogical. It is ridiculous because Satan, as king over his evil kingdom, would never use me or anyone else to throw his own soldiers out of his kingdom. Out of his kingdom. That's preposterous. You see, what what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is that their charge against him absolutely defies logic and clear thinking. Because logic demands that the devil would never fight against himself. Remember this. Satan is exceedingly wicked. But he's not stupid. He's not stupid. He's wicked. He's not stupid. He's more brilliant than any one of us. And he knows what he's doing. As one Bible teacher so aptly put it, Satan's demons may on occasion act inconsistently and in conflict with him and each other, just on occasion. But despite the disorder of his kingdom, his creature limits, his false exorcisms and demon Confusion, Satan does not cast out Satan and he is not divided against himself. There is no harmony, trust or loyalty in his kingdom, but he tolerates no disobedience or division. It was therefore preposterous to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the ruler of the demons. End of quote. That's exactly right. See, the devil would never cast out a demon and free a man who had been under his control because that would be destructive to his kingdom. And what what Satan is doing is trying he's trying to build his empire and expand it, not diminish it. If a man is demon possessed, Satan already has that man. Why would he use someone to cast out that demon? It doesn't make any sense. Now, this argument given by the Lord is a brilliant one. And it's an important one. And it's one that you and I can use in witnessing, in evangelizing, unbelievers who think that Jesus was a fraud, people who know enough about the Bible to be dangerous. And they'll tell you why Jesus is a fraud. Based on the Lord's approach to the Pharisees, you can ask them this compelling question and show them that their arguments have not been well thought out. You can say something like this. If Jesus wasn't from God, then how did he do all those miracles? Which scores of people observed him doing. He didn't He didn't do it in hiding. How did he do it? If his power wasn't from God, then it must have come from Satan. But it defies logic to think that Satan would attack and destroy his own kingdom by using one of his agents to expel 
demons. So how do you explain this? See, the reason this is a good question is you get people to think through the issues. Usually people who have rejections like this are rather smug in their arguments and and rather arrogant, trying to impress you that they are so scholarly and so intelligent they've thought through the issues and this is what they've concluded with, uh, come to a conclusion about. But they haven't thought it through. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. A question like this posed to an unbeliever forces them to think through the weakness of their unbelief to see how absurd it is. So the first argument Jesus gave to prove that the Pharisees' accusation was false is this. He told them, your accusation is illogical. But he moved on to a second argument to prove the Pharisees' accusation was false. Not only was their accusation illogical, but their accusation was inconsistent with their own beliefs. Notice verse 27. He said, if by Beelzebul, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. This is a fascinating argument. It's absolutely a brilliant argument used by the Lord in answering this charge. He reminds the Pharisees that some of their own former students, whom he calls your sons, he doesn't mean your physical sons, he means your disciples, your your learners, your followers, some of them were actually engaged in a ministry of exorcism, casting out of demons. That's precisely what Jesus meant when he said, by whom do your sons cast them out? It's a well-known fact of history that exorcism was a thriving business in the first century. Not only did many pagans engage in this kind of work, but there were actually, and it may surprise you to know, there were actually many Jewish men involved in the work of exorcism. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans, wrote in his writings that these Jewish exorcists use strange incantations, cultic charms in their rites of of exorcism. In fact, I'd like you to see one of these exorcists, actually a few of them, in Acts chapter 19. Luke, in Acts 19, tells us about an incident in which some Jewish exorcists tried to cast out a demon by using a new magic formula some special words of mentioning the name of Jesus and the name of the Apostle Paul, but they failed miserably. We'll break in in Acts 19 at verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So this is a marvelous remarkable type of miracle that that took place or miracles that that day but notice verse 13 says but also some of the jewish exorcists it means these men saw this going on who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the lord jesus saying i adjure you by jesus whom paul preaches and then luke tells us these were seven sons of one Sceva. So we have a family of seven brothers of a man named Sceva who was a Jewish chief priest. They were doing this. So far, this study that is titled Words Have Meaning has been fascinating. To me, it is interesting when I read the confrontations of Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospels. 
The Pharisees, of course, they never win. They're kind of like the Washington Generals versus the Harlem Globetrotters. Poor illustration, but you get the idea. They get a smackdown every time they confront Jesus, and yet they never learn. As we saw today, Jesus confronted them in their slanderous remarks that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Well, first of all, I kind of expected Jesus to say, Is that the best you have? He pointed out to them, though, that Satan would not attack his own kingdom. And then for good measure, Jesus asked them by what authority their followers cast out demons. Public humiliation, to be sure, but it only made the Pharisees more angry and more hardened in their rebellion against God. Now, there is more to learn in this story, and Pastor Steve will be with us again on our next program. So please join us then for Verse by Verse. Verse by Verse.